Good morning to all of you uh, here at Bethel this morning and to those of you who might be watching online. It's a delight to be in, in the house of the Lord. One of the cultural buzzwords of our day is the term deconvert. You may have heard about certain notable Christians that have been disclaiming their faith in Jesus Christ, walking away from their faith. The online journal, The Christian Post, recently did a series of articles in which they explored this whole issue. It was called Leaving Christianity. And one of the articles focused on a young man by the name of Luke. Now, let me tell you about Luke. Luke grew up in a Christian home. He was homeschooled. He spent an enormous amount of time memorizing Scripture, said to have memorized 22 books of the New Testament. He went on to uh, study, he had, his life goal was to be an apologist of Christianity, to defend the Christian faith. But as he began exploring both the pros and the cons of Christianity, the attacks against Christianity, doubts began to form in his mind. It really started with the, the biblical account of creation. He had difficulty reconciling Genesis 1 with what he was being told from secular sources. So, in this article, by the way, it's entitled, um, I Lost My Faith in a Chick-fil-A. He's sitting in a Chick-fil-A restaurant at the last, and he's reading one more book by a secular humanist philosopher. And he, it's there that things kind of come to a head, and he realizes at least he concludes in his mind that the Bible is not true and therefore Christianity is not real. He walked out of the Chick-fil-A restaurant that day an admitted atheist, and today he heads up a humanist organization in Phoenix, Arizona. Let me uh, just read you a few words from an article of his own. At that moment when he came to that crisis point, he said, I dropped my book, I went into the men's room, sat there on the toilet and bawled my eyes out for an hour and a half. It was over. I was an atheist. Having been drugged, kicking and screaming by the evidence against every desire, incentive and goal that I had set out with. It was all for nothing but to learn that my curiosity would not sleep until my desire to be an effective apologist left me with nothing to defend. I had wanted nothing more than to reinforce my faith, but willing myself to believe something that just didn't make sense was no longer sustainable. Rather sad story at the end of the, the article. Luke passes along a few words, I guess, to those of us who still profess our faith in Christ. He said this, evangelicalism is on the decline. As fewer people each generation grow up with Christianity as their normal, the apologetics that have been fairly effective at keeping believers in will have to evolve if they want to move forward in an increasingly secular world. The author of Hebrews in the New Testament also faced the dilemma of those who were being challenged in their faith and even coming to the point where they were about to give up their faith. 
So this idea about uh, walking away the, from the faith is, is really nothing new. They faced challenges, although they were a different sort. There wasn't so much philosophical arguments that they wrestled with. It was the challenge of living in a Roman society where their faith in Christ was mocked and ridiculed and sometimes even persecuted. Maybe you're uh, sitting here this morning and you're saying to yourself, well, I don't feel like I'm in that category. I don't feel like I'm deconverting uh, from the faith, walking away from it. But I think if we're really honest with ourselves, we do face challenges to our faith at times. Right now, there's a lot of things uh, going on in our country that, quite frankly, I think have brought all of us to, you know, have to... Uh, rely on the Lord, maybe more than we, we have been doing. We have the COVID-19 crisis going on, and, you know, that's been pretty bad. There's been funerals that people hadn't been able to attend, weddings they haven't been able to go to, maybe loved ones that are in assisted living centers and they can't see them. I mean, there's this convergence, though, of challenges along with that. A number of people have lost jobs or they've suffered financially. And if you haven't, maybe you probably know of someone that has. Then we have the racism issue and those who are taking things to a great extreme and causing so much trouble in our country. Though, of course, as Christians, we dis, uh, despise racism. You know, we believe that God has created uh, all men and we should love all men. And then we have the, the difficulty and the bitterness of a divided nation, and all the more so as we come upon an election in a few months. And then what awaits us? We've given out trillions of dollars that we didn't have, and this is bound to come back on us at some point. And all of these things weigh together to challenge our faith. These are hard times that we're living in, and we need to learn something about living with uh, hard times. I want to ask you this morning, how is your faith? Is it a faith that is sinking, or is it a faith that is flourishing and becoming strong in these days? This morning, we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 to 39, and the author is going to talk to us about the kind of faith we need for when hard times begin to rock our world. Before we look at the scripture, though, let's take a moment uh, to pray. Please join with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before your presence this morning, not needing to hear from man, not needing to hear from secular sources. We need to hear from our God. We pray as we open up your word that your Holy Spirit would kindly speak to us, challenge us, Lay open bare the things that are shortcoming in our lives and cause us to rise up and be the people of faith that you want us to be. Teach us, Lord, this morning about an enduring faith in hard times. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, let me give you just a little bit of orientation uh, to the book of Hebrews. Uh, the author was uh, writing to a group of a Jewish Christians, ones who had come to Christ out of a, a Jewish background. They had started well in their faith in Christ, but they were challenged. Uh, they were 
facing a lot of trials and difficulties, opposition, persecuted, and they were being tempted to re, uh, revert back into some form of uh, Judaism. And the author is trying to tell them that God had a plan where the old covenant now has given way to the new covenant in Christ based upon the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And that's where they need to put their faith and rely upon what God has revealed. So in chapters 8, 9, and the first part of chapter 10, he lays out for them and uh, portrays this once and for all perfect sacrifice that Christ has done for them on the cross. That is something far superior to all animal sacrifices. And then beginning in chapter 10, verse 19, and going on to, uh, through the rest of the book, he's going to exhort them as new covenant believers to rise up and live the kind of faith and the Christian life that God intends for them. They are ones that the author says have been sanctified. They've been saved. They've been justified. In chapter 10, verse 19, he refers to them as brethren. And he says, though by this time you, <clears throat> you ought to be, <clears throat> you know, mature, you're, you're acting like little babes in Christ. He says, some of you are forsaking your assembly to, of one another together. And he, he exhorts them to, to not to do that, but to come together and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And then he warns them in a severe judgment passage, chapter 10, 26 through 31, of the disaster it would be if they were to turn away from Christ and the judgment from God that they would face in doing so. A judgment not in the sense of loss of salvation, but a judgment of, of God that would carry with them into the eternal sphere. Well, we're going to be looking at uh, chapter 10, 32 through 39 now. And the passage divides up into three parts. He's going to look at their past, he's going to look at their present, and he's going to look at their future. First of all, he looks at their past in verses 32 through 34. Their past problems, they were facing hardship and suffering to follow Christ. Life was indeed really tough for them. So, let me, allow me to read uh, verse 32 to 34 of Hebrews 10. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Even for us today, there are reproaches and difficulties that we may be called upon to endure as, as a Christian. It could be something like getting skipped over in a promotion at work because of your Christian faith. We know that there are university professors on our campuses across the nation who have been denied tenure because of their faith in Christ. And a number of people have <clears throat> found themselves in lawsuits because they had a florist shop or photography business or maybe a cake-making bakery in which they could not participate in the sins of same-sex marriage by going along and, and helping to those ends. 
and ended up in lawsuits. For a few Christians, actually many Christians, especially outside our country, persecution is a very real thing. Before the uh, Civil War came along in the country of Syria, uh, I was going in about every two and a half months uh, to Syria to do training uh, with some various uh, Syrians uh, from Arab background. We had both men and women uh, in the group. Some of them were, uh, had come out of a Muslim background. I remember one young girl that was in the group from a Muslim background, and her family and her siblings did not know yet that she was a believer. She knew it would be, um, that th what they would do to her would be pretty uh, extreme. One day, one of her siblings found a copy of the New Testament among her belongings in her bedroom, and she went to the, you know, the parents, and she told them what had happened. The parents, along with the, the siblings in the family, took her outside to the street, and there in public view, they beat her to a pulp and left her bleeding and laying on the curb of the street. They, set, they threatened her that if you continue or try to meet with the Christians again, we will kill you. And they meant it. The Christian brothers and sisters that were part of our, our ministry there actually had to help her to get out of the country because she was determined to go on with her faith in Christ, but she could no longer live there. There's some... Also, we notice in here that these Hebrew Christians in the book of Hebrews, they'd had their property plundered, their possessions taken away from them. But the author reminds them that you know that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. And because of that belief, they were able to let go of those things that, the, that they had. A lesson for us, I think it helps us to put things into perspective that the things of this world are really temporary. And what matters the most is how we spend eternity. When the author says that they have a better possession than a binding one, he will elucidate this later in the epistle to the Hebrews. It's the heavenly Jerusalem to which they are headed in Christ, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ and the new Jerusalem. That's what awaits them. And if their focus stays upon what's still in their future, they can endure the difficulties they have in the moment. That attitude is, affects how decisions are made in life. And just as it applied to them, so it applies to us today. So in verse 32 through 34, he acknowledges that they had started well in the Christian life. In fact, their Christian life was costly to them, and they were willing to pay the price of being a Christian and following Christ. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he moves on in verse 35 and 36 to speak about their present. In the present, they have a need, and that's an endurance to gain an eternal reward. And now he's going to focus upon the kind of faith that they need at, at this time. Let's read verses 35 and 36. He says, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. The confidence that he speaks here, of course, is not a self-confidence. 
you might think, okay, if you're going in for a job interview, you want to be very, appear to be very confident and know what you're talking about and uh, seem uh, reasonable and so forth. But the author here is not talking about self-confidence at all. We have to understand the word. He uses a Greek word, parousia. And if we look at how the author is using that term in the book of Hebrews, we'll understand his point. It's not self-confidence at all, but a confidence in the person of Jesus Christ. So look with me to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6, where we see this word confidence once again. It says in Hebrews 3, 6, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence, there's our word, and our boasting in our hope. And then again, he uses the word in chapter 10, verse 19, Hebrews 10, 19. He says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. So their confidence was in Christ and that once and for all perfect sacrifice that he had made for them. That is the confidence that they had to come before God and know that they were accepted and justified and forgiven. And he says, don't throw away that confidence in Christ that, you know, you had. Rather, you have need of endurance so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. He's talking about endurance here. And Endurance is a steadfastness to hold up under pressure and not to cave in when the going gets tough. Some of you may have read the book or seen the, the movie Unbroken, the story of Louis Zapparini. It's a story about a man in World War II whose plane went down somewhere in the oceans and he's taken, he's captured by the Japanese, eventually ends up in a a Japanese uh, prisoner camp. And he, he's not a Christian, but uh, the commandant of the, of the camp, you know, has, is determined to break his will. It seems like not, no matter how bad he treats Louis Zapparini, that Louis just doesn't give in to him and, and really bow before him as he would like to see him. And uh, the movie, you know, focuses on that. Later, uh, when the... Uh, Finally, the, the prison camp is freed at the end of the war and he's released. You know, he comes back into civilian life and he struggles. Uh, he's, again, he's not a Christian yet. He gets involved in, in uh, using too much alcohol. But one day he's at, he appears at a Billy Graham crusade and the Lord breaks Louis Zapparini. He breaks down that will and that resistance uh, that he had had in his heart all these years. And he submits himself to Jesus Christ and realizes what has been missing in his life all that time. He had endurance, but it was an endurance that was kind of a, a human self uh, gutting it out type of endurance. Ours is a, a different. Ours is an endurance of faith, not just uh, human will, but I think that illustrates that endurance is that steadfastness to hold up when the, the going gets tough. But there's motivation here for that. He says, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Maybe as you were growing up, you received rewards. We often do that for our children. You know, you do chores around the house, you get some type of reward. I can remember as a child mowing the lawn for my father and 
I probably got all of 50 cents, you know, for doing that, but at the time I was glad to get uh, that reward. Or maybe uh, you get rewarded for grades, you know, a report card, you come home with a report card and maybe you happen to get a few A's on it and so you get so much reward for every A on your report card. Or maybe it's music lessons and the, your instructor gives you a, a star on your, your little booklet or something and you like that and it motivates you to try harder. And you go off to college and it's, now there's endurance involved, you know, it's typically four years of studying in college to get that bachelor's degree and you endure through it all. And you finally get that reward of a piece of paper. <laughs> and it says bachelor's degree on it or something and all that four years of work you know, for that one little thing. But this is a reward that far exceeds all this. It's a, what he calls in verse 35, a great reward. Not just a reward, a great reward. In verse 36, when he says, so that you may receive what is promised, literally in the Greek, he says, so that you may receive the promise. And you would have to have been following him all the way through the book of Hebrews to understand what he's getting at. He had spoken earlier in Hebrews about the wilderness generation that revolted against the Lord at Kadesh Barnea, and they were not allowed to go into the promised land. They forfeited their inheritance, and so they didn't have, have their rest. And in chapter 4 of Hebrews, you know, the author laid out an exhortation that they need to stay faithful and endure in the relationship with God so that they can enter into our rest. That rest is not a peaceful feeling in our heart or something so benign as that. It's entering into this heavenly eternal inheritance that Christ intends for us. That's the, the great reward. That is what's promised. And that's what's at stake here. What I find, I think, disturbing sometimes in Christianity is that we take so lightly the bearing that our present Christian life has upon our future. You know, I've heard too many people say, hey, you know, as long as I get into heaven, I get my ticket to, you know, enter in and walk through that, I'm good. That's enough for me. And that is such an immature, mistaken notion because they don't realize what is at stake here. The opportunity to participate in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, to reign with him, to receive an inheritance in this, is completely re related to the life that we live now. The faith that we have and the endurance with Christ we do now determines what our future is going to be. A lot of Christians don't realize that, but that is what the book of Hebrews is trying to teach us, and that's what's at stake here. And that's why the author is burdened for them to understand that it's imperative that they remain faithful with Christ and they endure through whatever hardships they have to, to stay faithful to Christ. He's acknowledged that in the past they suffered for their faith. In the present, they need to endure with faith to get an eternal reward. And now in verses 37 through 39, he wants to talk about their future and their future expectation. It's one of facing Christ at his return. The author in verse 37 and 38 is going to combine two quotations from the Old Testament, one from the book of Isaiah, chapter 26, 20, another one from the book of Habakkuk, 
chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. And let me read those verses, and then I'll comment upon them. He says in verse 37, For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Okay, so those are both quotations from the Old Testament. And I want to comment about this, the one he refers to as the coming one in verse 37. You see, this is a messianic designation. And you would need to understand a promise that Moses gave way back in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 18, 15. The Lord had appeared to Moses and to the people of Israel at Mount Sinai, and it was a fearful appearance because uh, there was thunder and lightning and all the storms flashing around the mountain while God came down upon it. And the people didn't want, they said to Moses, we don't want to, you know, come before God like that. Give us, you know, someone that we will speak to us. And so in Deuteronomy 18, 15, Moses, speaking by the Holy Spirit, said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. He would be a human being, not just a theophany appearing on a mountain. And that, that verse is quoted a couple of times in the New Testament as being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And that's why when you come to the, the Mount of Transfiguration, and Jesus is suddenly transformed in front of the three of the disciples. You know, there's this voice that comes out of the cloud, and it says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Picking up those words out of Deuteronomy 18, 15. The John the Baptist was, you know, as he was taken as a prisoner and before he was beheaded, began wondering, uh, he had proclaimed uh, Jesus as being the Lamb of God, but he hadn't yet, uh, you know, gone into Jerusalem and taking up his kingship and everything. So he sent word to Jesus trying to ask him uh, to confirm his identity. Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 through 5. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come? The one fulfilling, Deuteronomy 18, 15. Or shall we look for another? Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. The evidence was there on the table. You know, Jesus was... Uh, the coming one. So as we look at uh, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse uh, 37, uh, yet a little while, the coming one will come and will not delay. Jesus is that coming one. Of course, from the, the perspective of the author Hebrews, he's writing after the first coming of Jesus. He's obviously referring to the second coming of the Lord. He'll come, he'll not delay. That is, it will be in God's perfect timing. We don't know when the second coming of Christ will be, but God does. There'll be no delay about it. In verse 38, though, he says, But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Righteous one is what those of us who are Christians are. 
It's not because we are righteous in ourselves. The New Testament clearly teaches that when we put our faith in Christ for what he's done for us on the cross, we trust him as our Savior, then God gives us a righteousness. He imputes it into our being so that Christ's righteousness becomes our righteousness. And when God looks upon us, he doesn't see me and all my sinfulness. He sees the righteousness of Christ, and that's how God sees you if you are indeed in Christ. But that righteous one might live on by faith. That might be the characteristic of his life. Or, sadly, it might be a one of shrinking back. That is, shrinking back cowardly and in unbelief and disobedience to the Lord, walking, turning your back and walking away from the Lord. So that same righteous one can go in one of two directions, either living a life of faith, enduring in faith, or shrinking back in unbelief. And if he were to do the latter, God says, my soul has no pleasure in him. Those are pretty strong words, you know, to have to think about. Now, the question is, why does the author speak about these two alternatives for the righteous one right after mentioning the second coming of Jesus Christ? Why does he put those together? And the answer is, is that when Jesus comes back at his second coming, those of us who are truly Christ's own, who are believers in Christ, we will go through a judgment. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. It's different from the judgment that unbelievers will go through, but it'll be a time when we have to come before the Lord and he will review our life and examine us. We get one glimpse of this, for instance, in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 14, verse 10 through 12 in the context about being careful about judging other Christians. And he says in Romans 14, 10 through 12, why do you pass judgment on your brother or why do you despise your brother? For you will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Now, the purpose of that is not to determine where we're going to spend eternity. That's already determined the moment that we put our faith in Christ. This giving an account of ourselves to God will be for the purpose of determining what role we will have in the future kingdom of Christ, what rewards will be given to us for our faithfulness. And that's obviously a very important matter. So it's to evaluate how faithful we were to him while on earth. And the Lord will know which ones who are the ones who endured in faith, who had a courageous faith. The outcome, however, for those who shrink back is picked up in verse 39, where he says, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Unfortunately, this doesn't get translated very well in, in some of our translations. Uh, some of you may be reading from the NIV, and even though the NIV is an excellent translation in uh, most parts, at this particular verse, it talks about for those who are destroyed, um, we're, but we are those who believe and are saved. It's almost like putting the focus upon salvation faith at the moment you become a Christian. 
but that's not even what the author's talking about. And there's several problems with that translation. First of all, the word saved is not even in the text in the Greek. They've just translated it that way. A second reason is that the whole preceding context is not about their need to come to faith in Christ and be saved, become a Christian. It's about enduring in faith. And thirdly, the following context, which is all of Hebrews chapter 11, is about men and women who had lives of faith and who endured in faithfulness to God. God's Hall of Fame chapter, we sometimes call it. So this is not talking about a saving faith here. It's talking about a faith that endures and remains faithful to God. The destruction that he speaks about is not destruction in hell. The term can be used another way. In fact, several of the terms that are used in this verse are also used in passages like Matthew 16, 24, and 25. Allow me to read that. Matthew 16, 24, and 25. And Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Those who are reluctant to have to pay a price for their faith, who might have to suffer for it, who might even ultimately be called upon to martyrdom, if they try to avoid all of that, they're going to end up losing eternally. But those who are faithful to the Lord, no matter what it costs them, are going to be richly rewarded in the kingdom of Christ. That's what's in store there as Jesus was speaking. And so that's what he's talking about in Hebrews 10, 19, about the preserving of the soul, the life. That is, it's not going to be wasted. You don't want your life wasted. You want your life to count for Christ right now so that the Lord will say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And he will bless you and give you an eternal reward. You know, we're not exempt from hard times. And it's probably going to get more difficult for us as time goes on rather than getting easier. And I think we need to be prepared for that. At hard times, they're certainly going to come. You know, the New Testament, as we read it, has a lot to say about what believers can expect in terms of trials and suffering for their faith in Christ. And, you know, we who are American Christians, and I've traveled to 40-something countries of the world, and I've seen so many believers that have to pay a heavy price for their faith in Christ. And I will be honest with you, we have had it so easy in this country. But those times may be changing, and we need to be prepared for that. We need to learn the lesson from Hebrews 10, 32 to 39, about in it, the need and the importance of an enduring faith. The message the author would try to get us to understand, and which we must take to heart, is that when hard times come, a faith that endures is a faith Christ rewards. A faith that endures is a faith Christ rewards. Back when I was in seminary many years ago, I had a, a part-time job working in a bank in downtown Dallas. And uh, many times I would ride the bus uh, to and fro uh, to work. 
And it was a good time for me to do a little reading, and I, uh, being on a bus, I did some more devotional reading and some heavy theology or something. I particularly enjoyed reading missionary biographies, and uh, they were exciting to me. I loved reading their stories. And I'm sure the Lord used that in our life because Linda and myself eventually became missionaries, and we've been missionaries uh, in the Philippines for many years in Singapore and for a number of years in the Middle East in Amman, Jordan. One of the books that I, I remember reading and particularly enjoyed was a book called Shadow of the Almighty, a book written by Elizabeth Elliot. It tells the story of her husband, Jim Elliot. Now, both Jim and Elizabeth were college students at Wheaton College uh, in their young, younger days. And uh, in the, the prologue to the book, Shadow of the Almighty, she comments upon uh, Jim's journal that he kept. So he had a daily journal that he wrote in. And she was looking for the entry for October the 28th, 1949. He was just a college student. He had been reading Luke 24, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but he, but he forfeits his soul? And beside that verse, Jim wrote in his journal that day these classic words, maybe you've heard them before. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Those would prove to be prophetic in his life. Later, after their studies at Wheaton, Jim and Elizabeth Elliot both ended up on the mission field in Ecuador. In fact, they were married on the mission field. Jim Elliot's desire in life, his reason for going to the mission field, there was a particular Indian group, the Huarani Indians in Ecuador, and he wanted to reach it. They were an unreached people group, and he wanted to be, have the, the honor of bringing the gospel to them. He had other missionaries uh, there with him, and uh, they had a mutual burden to try to reach this people. They had a little Piper airplane, and they began flying over this area where the, this tribal group lived and, and dropping gifts to them. They were under the impression that the people were happy and received them favorably, and so they made plans for uh, landing their Piper airplane there. And on the morning of January the 8th, 1956, they flew their little Piper plane into a sandbank along the Correre River in Ecuador. A difficult landing, but successfully maneuvered. But that would be their last day there on Earth. Jim Elliott, along with his fellow missionaries, Ed McCauley, Nate Sain, Ed Fleming, and Roger Guderian were speared to death by the very ones they were seeking to reach for Christ. Now, Jim had said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And what he gave up there that day, the Lord honored. Elizabeth Elliot and one of the other widows by the way, he left, Jim left behind his, his wife, Elizabeth, and a 10-month-old daughter, Valerie. But Elizabeth and another woman 
returned and stayed on there for a few more years. And in due time, a number of the Indians from that tribal people group came to faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Jim, even though he's with the Lord now, will have the pleasure of enjoying eternity with him forever. So I ask you the question this morning, how is your faith? Is it one that's shrinking back? Or is it one that's enduring and actually growing stronger and you're walking with the Lord and you're seeking his strength and growing in the Lord? Remember this, when hard times come, a faith that endures is a faith that Christ rewards. And that reward will be very great. And in that day, you will be so thankful that you remain faithful to the Lord. God bless you. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for ministering to us this morning from your word. Our glory and honor be to the one to whom alone it belongs, to you, Lord Jesus. I pray that you would impact our lives with your message and that you would cause us to rise up and be the people of God we should be in our day and time, to have an enduring faith so that when the hard times come, we endure through faith because of the great reward you have for us. We praise you in Jesus' name.